When the money's coming your way, you don't ask any questions. Good day and good night. Welcome to the High and Low Basketball Podcast, the High and Low Basketball Show. This is episode number 100 and Sheed, a.k.a. episode number 136. Woo! 36 was the number worn by Rashid Wallace when he was a member of the 2004 NBA champion Detroit Pistons. Uh, if you ask any Laker or Laker fan, they were the worst, the most fortunate the most undeserving championship team of all time. Now that's a hard motherfucking fact of life. But that's a fact of life your ass is going to have to get realistic about. Again, that's if you ask a Laker. Uh, but back to number 36. Mr. Number 36, Rashid Wallace, was uh, a gifted and versatile big. A stretch four before the term was even a thing. He could knock down the three, take his, his man off the dribble on the wing. He could get busy down the block. Uh, Rashid Wallace did it all. Some say Sheed had all the tools to be one of the greatest, but he got in his own way. You know, others would tell you NBA officiating got in his way more often than not. I mean, when I think of Rashid Wallace, one term comes to mind, ball don't lie, which is what he would say when an opponent missed the free throw after a questionable call. Uh, refs started hitting him with the with the tech when he would say it, which was absolutely ridiculous if you think about it, but entertaining at the same time. For many fans, Boogie Cousins comes to mind when talking about players who've had issues with uh, refs getting teed up every other game, you know. But if you're if you're that fan, you should watch some old Pistons games and witness the swift whistles from Mr. Wallace. Numbers don't lie. Uh, the man holds the record for most technical fouls in a season, 41, and most ejections in a season, which is 29. It's a lot. Anyway, my name is Ike Amechi, going solo for this special episode. And around here, we live by the principle governed by the high and low lives of the world, which means we talk about basketball, especially and specifically the NBA. And we talk about it at any time, anywhere, north, south, east, west, high and low. This week, on the High and Low Basketball Show. It's all about the business of basketball. It feels like a perfect time to talk about the business of the NBA, the shmoney, in uh, the wake of the Phoenix Suns NBA record $4 billion sale. Is it really? Yes, you heard correctly. That's uh, the number four followed by nine zeros. I'm going to dive into the numbers, the value of the league and its teams and how this, this conglomerate, this basketball monopoly, runs its business. Uh, if you were ever curious, stay tuned for that. Uh, before we lock in, let's jump back because it's another week, another episode, more NBA, more high and low. This week in NBA history, it was the beginning. On December 26, 2011, a few players from the 2011 NBA draft made their debuts, including first overall pick Kyrie Irving of the Cleveland Cavaliers, and they lost to the Raptors 104-96. Also, uh, the future Raptor and Clipper, Kawhi Leonard, he made his debut for the San Antonio Spurs on that night. Kawhi was 15th in the draft. Spurs were more successful in the, in the Cavs in their game. Uh, they played against the Grizzlies, and they won that game 95-82. to 
Uh, you might be asking yourself how a team or player could debut in December when the NBA season usually begins in October. Uh, if you ask that question, I say, great question. The 2011-2012 NBA season started on December 25th due to a lockout. It was the fourth work stoppage in NBA history. The lockout officially began on July 1st and spilled over into the fall when owners and players couldn't agree on issues such as revenue sharing and salary cap structure. Uh, during the lockout, there were no trades, no signings. Players couldn't access NBA team facilities. Uh, some players opted to play overseas. The problem for some was uh, they had no opt-out clause uh, in those contracts, which meant they wouldn't be able to return to the league before the end of the contract in the event the lockout ended early. And that's exactly what happened. The lockout ended on December 8th, 2011. And uh, notable players like J.R. Smith, Kenyon Martin, Patty Mills, well, they had to stay in China. Uh, and looking at this list of players who had no opt-out clause in their foreign contracts, I mean, I can see several names here that most likely never made it back to the NBA after this. I'm sure they, they signed because they needed to make that money at a time when no paychecks were being signed over and bills needed to be paid only to have that main source taken away because of that decision, man. Life can be harsh, even for, for those making millions. Even to a guy like me, that's cold. Anyway, that's a little something for the NBA history nerds. Things are certainly happening in the NBA today, so let's talk about let's it. Let's talk about something important. I mentioned the sale of the Phoenix Suns and Mercury at the top of the show. Robert Sarver and his group have uh, agreed in principle to sell their majority stake to mortgage executive Matt Ishbia for $4 billion. These sales uh, usually take several weeks and there's a vetting process that the NBA must employ. Uh, once that's approved, the sale has to be approved by the league's board of governors. Uh, the board isn't scheduled to meet until March of 2023. However, they could meet earlier to uh, vote virtually if they if this whole process is completed before then. So, yeah. Anyway, fun fact, Matt Ishbia is no stranger to the game. He played for the Michigan State Spartans under Tom Izzo. What did you say? In fact, he was a member of that championship team in 2000 that featured uh, some former NBA players like uh, Mateen Cleaves, Morris Peterson or Mo Pete, uh, Charlie Bell, Andre Hudson, and a young freshman by the name of Jason Richardson. Uh, Matt Ishbia was a 5'10 guard. I'm assuming he was a point guard. And he averaged uh, half a point per game and uh, less than half an assist per game, less than half a rebound per game. Uh, definitely getting 12th man vibes from this uh, from this guy. But look at him now, worth $5.1 billion in the owner of an NBA franchise. Started from the bottom of the depth chart. Now he's here. <laughs> it's time to take a quick break so this segment can uh, avoid death by a thousand cuts by just sinking into a soothing pool of vodka and hydrogen peroxide just to soak those cuts. Uh, when we come back, we get down to business. We'll be right back with more High and Low. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to the show. I'm Ike Mechi doing a solo this week. The business of basketball is an interesting space. There's no question that the sport has grown into a global monster. Its popularity really only trailing behind soccer or football to a high and low lines across the pond. So one can only assume that the center of this global monster, the National Basketball Association, is making bank. And if there was ever a safe assumption to make, it would be this one. Business is good in the NBA. You know, I mean, we obsess over the numbers of the game, the stat lines, the wins and the losses. We also love to pour over the numbers of the business, the dollar figures tethered to player transactions and, you know, sale of a team to Michigan State's former 12th man for an amount that would probably equal the GDP of a small country. Uh, we, we pour over the multi-billion dollar TV deals, the signature shoe deals. We're enamored by the millions and billions of dollars in constant circulation around the league and its partners. But how does all of this work? How does the NBA operate as a business, a monopoly, if you will? And how does that business make money? How does it manage its revenue? When talking about the league making money as a company, it's important to know that the NBA is not publicly traded. It doesn't have to share any financial reports with, with the public, but the league does share some numbers and certain sources have been able to compile valuations of the teams and other financial markets. So we're, we're able to formulate a pretty accurate picture of the league's economy. The money, the brains, the nucleus. Another important thing to know when talking about the league making money is BRI basketball related income. BRI would include ticket sales, concessions, uh, TV deals, merchandising rights from like jerseys and apparel. This makes up the majority of revenue generated by the league. The other portion not considered BRI would be revenue sharing, uh, fines levied by the league, proceeds towards expansion teams. Uh, You know, the NBA hasn't had one of those in a while, but Expansion is probably being considered within the next few years. So it's probably important to to add that point. I see you, Mexico City. Now, on the surface, one would assume that revenue sharing is basketball-related income. But just think about it like this. If you consider the definition of BRI, revenue sharing would present a clear advantage to high-revenue-generating teams like the Lakers of Los Angeles or the Knicks of the Garden. BRI is factored into the calculations of the salary cap. And if it includes revenue sharing, teams like the Lakers and the Knicks would drive the salary cap through the roof, which would put small market teams at such a huge disadvantage because it would cost more to keep the top players on their rosters. You know, this would lead to disparity financially and competitively. And the Lakers or the Knicks would probably each have players like Giannis, LeBron, Tatum, KD, Embiid, Kawhi, and they probably just win championships every season with a team like San Antonio, Milwaukee, or Toronto stealing one every 12 seasons. I mean, I can hear the chafing from Spike Lee rubbing his hands together in excitement with uh, the type of smirk you would see on the Joker or that movie Smile. That would be an amazing thing if that happened. Or... Maybe that's the sound of James Dolan scratching his head, trying to figure out what revenue sharing really is. Because I think it's really important to understand what revenue sharing really is. So for those of you that don't know, 
let me just quickly explain. Basically, all 30 teams pool their money together, their annual revenue, and it's redistributed from the highest grossing teams to the lowest, which means each team would receive revenue equal to the salary cap that year. The one caveat is small market teams have to generate up to or equal to 70% of the league average to get those full revenue sharing benefits. Now, back in 2017, the Bucks and the Hawks were two of nine teams that lost out on those benefits. So it does happen. It can happen. Not so much today because the league's persons are busting at the seams. Like I said, the NBA is good. The NBA is good. next now i broke down the anatomy of the bri tv deals ticket sales concessions licensing agreements sponsorships and i'm just going to quickly touch on some numbers here now tv deals have been a huge huge revenue generator for the nba streaming has completely disrupted traditional television watching now by now uh, most people have cut the cord and they're consuming content on Netflix, Disney Plus, you know, so on and so forth. Linear TV is on life support and broadcast television ratings are at an all time low. However, people still flock to their televisions to watch live sports, especially basketball and football. The NBA knows this, which is why networks have had to pay a premium to televised games. In February 2016, the NBA announced a nine-year media rights deal with ESPN and Turner Sports worth $24 billion. And when the deal took effect, both ESPN and Turner agreed to pay the league a combined $2.6 billion per season. In the previous deal back in 2007, Turner and ESPN paid the NBA $930 million annually. That's a 180% increase. There's your premium. All right, you guys, what's next? Now, the results of the NBA's sponsorship deals and licensing agreements are ubiquitous. When you're watching a game on TV, you're inundated with ads and logos at courtside or on the court, when you walk into any NBA arena, you can't look in any direction without seeing a corporate sponsor. Even the naming rights for arenas are part of that whole revenue stream. Anywhere you go, you're likely to come across a fan or a casual wearing some sort of NBA apparel from T-shirts and hats to jerseys. I mean, the fruits of this money generator are everywhere, and it's a lucrative one. Lucrative. Now, Adidas had been the NBA's official uniform and apparel supplier since 2006 when it acquired Reebok, the league's previous supplier. Nike assumed that position in 2016 when the league signed an eight-year, $1 billion contract. Now, that's a 245% increase from the previous deal, which was uh, the primary reason Adidas had to pull its bid at the time. You know, Adidas had slipped to third behind Nike and Under Armour, and they couldn't really afford to pay that NBA premium that we keep talking about. And Nike, on the other hand, they were happy, more than happy to pay up 
controlling 90% of the basketball shoe market share in the U.S. at the time. The NBA gave Nike a number, and Phil Knight said, just do it. All right, so listen, why don't you give me a call when you want to start taking things a little more seriously? Ticket sales and concessions are another part of BRI. And although they're not as sexy a revenue stream as the TV deal, they're just as critical for teams. At one point, the Knicks had the most expensive tickets in the the NBA. But in recent years, they've been eclipsed by the Warriors, followed by the Lakers of Los Angeles. Uh, The Knicks are still third, though. Still third. You know, I think it's important to know that they're, they're not working at a loss. You know, it's still all gain, regardless of how the team performs. Ticket costs in New York continue to grow, not as rapidly as we've seen in LA or San Francisco. Uh, one way the NBA measures ticket sales, and this is interesting, it's called FCI, Fan Cost Index, which essentially means the cost of taking a family of four to a game. And this includes tickets, concessions, and parking. So league-wide FCI in 2022 was $444.12. Back in 2010-2011, it was $287.85. Inflation is a Well, that's a very offensive way to put it. I've thrown a lot of numbers and acronyms around, around the show, this episode, but it all illustrates a picture of economic vitality. Uh, By all metrics, the NBA is cooking. In 2001, 30 NBA teams generated $2.5 billion. According to Forbes, that number climbed to $8.76 billion by 2019. At this point, every team in the NBA was worth north of a $1 billion, uh, $2.12 billion on average per team, uh, the least of which was still worth just over a billion. Of course, the pandemic came and it completely derailed the league's revenue in 2020 and uh, 2021, but revenue climbed past the $10 billion mark for the first time in 2022. Again, the NBA is good. It's cooking. Circling back around to the Phoenix Suns who were just purchased by Michigan State Waterboy. Matt Ishbia for uh, $4 billion. It's interesting to see that the Suns were valued at $2.7 billion prior to the sale, 13th in the league, and right behind 12th place Miami at $3 billion, and 11th place Toronto at $3.1 billion. The Philadelphia 76ers are 10th, uh, Houston Rockets at 9th, even without a superstar or a star. It's interesting. That's an interesting one. Uh, Dallas is eighth in value. Uh, Brooklyn is seventh. I know Steve Ballmer is happy with his investment, seeing the, the Clippers at sixth. Uh, Boston is fifth. Shout out to Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> uh, the Bulls are in fourth, still living off their, their Jordan days. And uh, the Lakers of Los Angeles are the third most valuable team in the NBA valued at $5.9 billion. And even though they're nowhere close to winning, the Knicks, the Knicks of the garden keep winning because 
they are second, the second most valuable team valued at $6.1 billion. Nowhere close to winning, but they still keep winning. So that leaves us with the most valuable team in the NBA, which I think is obvious at this point, but how much might surprise you? The Golden State Warriors, their current value is $7 billion. It's, it's, it's madness. It's mad. To put that into context, the team was purchased for $450 million in 2010. No, I don't believe you. Who are you talking to right now? Do you know how much I make a year? I mean, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. So while Giannis, Jokic, and LeBron excite fans and get buckets, the NBA, as a business, gets money. A lot of money. Why the f- I can't shoot three-point shots? That brings us to the end of this episode of the High and Low Basketball Show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I got to do more of these. I like this one. I mean, I like having the guys here. It's good to have that discourse, that conversation, but this, this was nice. This was nice. Anyway, subscribe to High and Low anywhere you find podcasts and keep making us part of your weekly routine. Uh, hey, you know where to find us. One Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube. The links are all in the show notes. Uh, music is by Live at the Enjoy Music Group. You can find Live on Twitter and on Instagram at L-Y-V-E. That's the music you're listening to right now. Love this music. Love this song. Uh, additional music is by Sonny Rockwell of The Goodness. Can't find that guy anywhere. Believe me, I've tried. Sound design is by Vaughn August. This is a Vaughn Abraham podcast. Just in case you didn't know, I'm Ike Meiji. Thank you for listening to High and Low. And we'll talk to you next week.